Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we are talking about sex. More specifically, Kink, a new short story anthology edited by R.O. Kwan and Garth Greenwell. The book includes stories from folks like Roxane Gay, Brandon Taylor, Alexander Chi, and many, many more. Both editors join me today to discuss how they set out to compile a collection that would push against harmful stereotypes around kink, as well as the ways the pandemic has changed how we're thinking about sex and touching. Plus, we talk about the nuts and bolts of crafting a collection with so many incredible authors. The Stacks book club pick for March is Everybody Looking by Candice Elo, and we will discuss the book in detail on Wednesday, March 31st with Nick Stone. Every week at the top of the show, I get to shout out the newest members of the Stacks pack, aka the people who support this podcast each month on Patreon. I have to say that this is something that always floors me. I'm just so humbled that so many of you listen to this show and then put your money behind me, a content creator that you love. The simple truth is that without Patreon and the Stacks Pack, I would not be able to make this show. If you're interested in supporting the work I do and making this podcast each week, please head to patreon.com slash the stacks. In exchange for your generosity, you have access to our virtual book club and other perks. But the truth is those perks are really small in comparison to the amount of incredibleness you all bring into my life. Here are some of the latest members of the Stacks Pack. Michelle Perrette, Amanda Folk, Christine, Alyssa Mazzoni, Amanda Bernal, Leah, Greg Gunther, Jessica, Valentina, and Mark Armstrong. So to these 10 folks and to everyone else who's part of the Stacks Pack, truly, truly, truly thank you all for supporting me and everything that the Stacks is. Okay, now it's time for my conversation with the editors of Kink, R.O. Kwan and Garth Greenwell. All right, everybody. I'm very excited today. I am joined by the two co-editors or two editors. I don't know if you have to be a co-editor of the short story collection, Kink. Yes, we're getting kinky today. R.O. Kwan and Garth Greenwell. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for having us. I'm the biggest fan of the stacks and it's exciting to to be here Uh. with you, Tracy. I'm really excited to have both of you. So I just have to say publicly, just straight up front, I'm very nervous. People can't see me, but I'm like smiling really big because I have to talk about sex for an hour and it's going to make me stressed out. (laughs) But I feel like hopefully um, you guys will guide me through this because my mom and my aunt listen to this podcast. So here we go. For what it's worth, about a, a couple of a week or so ago, um, I put up on Instagram. I said something like, um, "By the way, if you're related to me, I'm, I'm going to be talking a lot about sex um, for these next weeks because there's a book called Kink coming up. Um, and if that's a problem, I beg of you, mute me." <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that's that's how I feel right now. Like, mom, turn off the episode. Uh, but in all seriousness. Let's talk about the book. Okay. Well, we always start in the same place, which is in about 30 seconds or so. One of you, you can decide who wants to do it. Tell me about the book. 
Kink is an anthology of fiction about desire and sex and kink. Um, and there are 15 stories in it from, um, from some of the most exciting contemporary writers of our time. Very well done. Okay. So where did y'all get the idea for this book? Um, so I was, this, this was in the fall of 2017. Um, I was at a residency. I was at McDowell, the artist colony, um, for just for, for a month. And like, I feel so one of the magnificent things about a residency is that more begins to feel possible, um, than might feel possible in the course of like a harried everyday life. Um, and I remember I had just published a story in Playboy. Um, it's a version of the story that appears in Kink. Um, and I was really anxious about, I, 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 I also have a great deal of trouble talking about sex. Like, <laughs> like my friends, my, my good friends know that like if sex comes up at the dinner table, you know, like I just, I just kind of like fall dead quiet. Like there's like no judgment. I'm all for it, but like, it's just, I cannot help anyone. I cannot really like be present. Um, and so I was, I was really anxious about publishing the story in, in Playboy. Um, but the response was overwhelmingly lovely. Like the emails were mostly, um, the emails I got were mostly just like people saying that they felt a little less lonely after reading the story. And I found that to be really moving. And then I read Garth's story <laughs> in the Paris Review, um, which is also the story that a version of which appears in Kink. Um, and I'd greatly admired it. I'd also recently read Whip Smart um, by Melissa Phoebos and I just, I think like I was sitting in that library at the artist residency and I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if a book combining um, these kinds of stories, bringing them together could exist in one book? Um, if a book like this could, could, could be made available for a library like this. Um, so I think that was pretty much where it started. I love that. I'm definitely glad that the book exists. It made me feel all hot and bothered. I definitely had to put the book down a few times because I was like, this is overwhelming me. Um, so for people at home, uh, the way that I recommend reading it, so I'm curious how you all might think, but the way that I would recommend reading it is to read one or two stories at a time and kind of like let them marinate in your life. Whereas some short story collections, I'm more like, just read the whole thing, like read it through like you'd read a novel. I feel like each of these stories is so full and rich that they can sustain themselves and they can sustain themselves in your mind for, you know, 24 hours, 48 hours longer. And I kind of rushed through reading it. And then I took a break and then I read the last like four stories over two days. And I was like, this feels more manageable to me. Like I'm, I'm able to kind of like live in these more. So I'm curious if you all have advice or if there's anything you think that your readers should keep in mind when reading these stories. Yeah, I really love that as a way of reading the book. And it sounds pretty perfect to me. Um, you know, I do think, you know, these are stories that are pretty unflinching and um, some of them addressing difficult subjects. Now, I mean, I, I don't want the book to sound too scary because I think the book's a lot of fun. It and, is. Um, and, you know, and kink is, it's sort of the stories strike kind of all the feelings, you know? So, I mean, I think there are you know, stories that, that are difficult to read that go to dark places. And then there are also stories that are about joy and play. Um, but they're also, you know, one of the things that Aro and I knew about the book very early on when we started talking about the project was that we wanted the stories not just to be interesting because of what they were about, but also to be, um, you know, we invited these writers because they're writers who really excite us as artists. And so I also think it's good to give the stories a bit of breathing space just because, you know, they make such aesthetic claims upon us as well. Yeah, that leads me sort of into one of my big questions for both of you, which is the collection has a, is, I don't know, I, this word is like so silly feels so silly to use but the collection is so diverse and I mean that in a lot of ways I think that you know obviously the different contributors that you have are from different ethnicities and races you have people of different sexual orientations and gender identities but also you have writers of super different styles when I think of like Carmen Maria Machado and Brandon Taylor I feel like they're they are similar in the ways that they write sort of really visually and like emotionally stimulating things, but also like could not have a more different tone, you know, or like you look at like 
you know, Aro, your your story and Gar's story, they're so different and Alexander Chi. And so I'm curious how you all sort of pulled together such a diverse collection. Um, and again, I'm using the word diverse because that feels like the only word to use, but I don't mean it simply in there are Korean American writers and black writers. Like I mean it in the real more true sense of like, there's a richness to the book's contributors. Mm. I just, I love that. I love that so much, Tracy. Thank you for saying that. Um, I feel as though in some ways, you know, because, because most of these pieces were written um, for the anthology. So they were, so most of it was new fiction. Um, we certainly weren't, we, we, we had, we had not one word to say about like, could you write about X or like, we're hoping for Y or like, here's how we define kink. Um, all we, I think we, Garth and I were, were, um, we were we were pretty deliberate about how we worded the emails, um, asking asking for work, and um, and we said we are looking for fiction that in meaningfully incorporates kink um, as you would define it, and mm. so and so I think maybe just having that openness um, might have might have might have helped um, foster the diversity that you're talking about. Um, and yeah, and, and it was, I will say it was, it was really, really important to me in thinking of this project that, um, that the project, that the book just be as inclusive as possible. And of course it's one book, there are limitations. Um, it has 15 stories, which is both a lot and a very small number. Um, and so, and so there, we couldn't do everything. Um, but it was of great importance that the book be as inclusive as possible. And did you all sit down with each other or over the phone or Zoom or whatever and say, okay, who do you want? Let's draft a dream team and send out emails. Like, how did you decide who to reach out to with this very specifically open-ended email about kink? And then, you know, you said what you asked for, but like, how did you reach out? Were they people that are already in your circles? Or did you say like, oh, I know, you know, Roxanne Gay can write about some kink. Like, let me just cold call. Like how, what is the, just for people at home and me curious, how does that work? I mean, I think it. we started, yeah, by kind of putting together a dream team of writers we admired, some of which we knew and some of which, you know, we didn't really have contact with, um, and, you know, I did think of it as sort of like, I want to put together the perfect party. Like, mm. you know, who are the people I want, you know, to sort of hang out with in this weird charged way. Um, and then, you know, once we sold, so we got some names attached um, before going out with the book on proposal um, to try to find a publisher. And then once um, we had a publisher you know, I think it was announced in Publishers Marketplace or whatever that thing is called. And um, and then we tweeted the announcement. And then, you know, we got a bunch of people just sort of like saying, you know, please, you know, can I can I send you guys a story or can I write something for this? Um, and that was a way also that the the sort of group kind of expanded a bit. I love that it was some people like we want you and then some people being like, I'm ready to get kinky with you all. Let's do it. <laughs> it was kind of great, you know, and it was also, I don't think, well, there was one person, I will not say who, but a very dear friend and very great writer. And I was like, I feel like this is probably not for you, but um, I love your work so much. And he was like, yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> but other than that, I think um, pretty much everyone we reached out to was really, really excited about the project. Yeah. I think. Probably, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that there is sort of a, I don't know, hierarchy or something about people who, you know, write literary fiction versus people who write romance or erotica. And I think that this book sort of breaks that down a little bit and says, like, this can be, it can be sexy time and it can be literary fiction and writing this is challenging and it is artful also. I don't know if that was something you all set out to do with the book, but that's definitely something that I thought about as a reader. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, I mean, the book the book is very much on the side of um, sex, not just belonging in, but like it's it's just it's almost like I don't I, I cannot understand the idea of literature 
having to have like very little sex in it. Like, why is that even an idea that we have? Right. Um, <laughs> and I, and I, and I, and I'm, and I'm so on the side of fiction, um, that makes the case for, for us not doing that anymore. <laughs> Right. Both, both with this book, um, but with with Gar's work in general, you know, um, and it feels that that's part of that was part of why I felt drawn to um, to asking Garth if he wanted to edit this book with me because I'd heard I'd heard him talk about um, the place of sex and literature and been and felt just tremendously moved by it. Yeah. Okay. This is a little more nuts and bolts, but you get the fifteen stories back, and how do you two work to? put the book in order? What are you looking for? What are you thinking about when you're kind of crafting a book as the editors? And then, well, I'll save the second part. Start there. Well, so, I mean, the process was really fun and really collaborative. Um, so Aro and I, you know, we both read each story, sort of, we would, we would take, one of us would take point on a story in terms of like communicating with the writer and, um, but we would both we both were involved in kind of you know editing the stories um giving any feedback and then in terms of ordering um i mean i think ro you sort of gave put a lot of thought into the sequence and then our editor at simon and schuster too zach knoll put a lot of thought into kind of constructing the experience of book from beginning to end yeah and that experience was um was was so it's not that I didn't think it would be enjoyable, but um, I was surprised by how enjoyable it was to edit these pieces with Garth um, and with our editor at SNS Zach. Um, I, I I remember I think that we, Zach, Garth and I had an initial conversation, and Garth says something like, "My preferred editing style has to do with like asking questions and not making a lot of statements." I was like, "Hundred percent, that's where I've always been," <laughs> and it was such a joy to like. I don't know, to even just like read Garth's editorial notes, to talk about this, to talk about it with the editors. Um, our editors were so generous in giving us, not only giving us our time and not only in trusting us with their pieces, but in being just like overall, just like really open to um, working with us on, on on the questions we had. So that is literally leads right into my next question. So thank you for teeing me up, which is when you, so both of you are also writers, novelists, you both have novels, you both are are used to the process of being edited by a person who is an editor at your at your publisher. What do you do as editors of this anthology in relationship to your editor at Simon and Schuster? Like what is that relationship? Is that person sort of a third editor or do you all do a lot of the work with the with the writers, the contributors, and then bring more finished products to that to that third um, outside editor. This is sort of a really inside baseball question, but it's something that I personally am very curious about, and I don't get to talk about this part of writing very often. Yeah, I mean, this is our first time doing it, so I don't know. You know, I don't know if this is standard at all, but I do think, and Aro, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Aro and I went through two drafts with each of the writers um, before showing those drafts to our editor at SNS. So at Simon and Schuster. So um, I think, you know, we did much of the heavy lifting. I mean, not that, I mean, for a lot of these stories, there wasn't a lot of heavy lifting. Like <laughs> these are really masterful writers. And, you know, so it was really, I mean, as Zara was saying, I mean, it was really about like asking questions or if we saw a place you know, that we thought a story might open up in an exciting way or just, you know, it was it was not uh, really heavy lifting at all. Mm. But we did that work. And then um, Zach did a third pass and sort of asked a lot of questions on his own. Is that am I remembering that right? Yeah, pretty much. Um, I I'd only add that I think with a couple of the stories, um, Zach, Zach was Zach sort of led the chart, not led the chart. Sorry. What violent language to talk about <laughs> manuscript We've edits. just been through a hard four years, yeah, you know. My head has been full of revenge for four years, man. Um, <laughs> That's right. I know that was not the spirit at all of talking about these, um, talking about these beautiful manuscripts. No, um, Zach um, shepherded at least a couple of the pieces. Zach sort of did a lot of the work on, That's right. if I remember correctly. And we yeah. were really grateful That's for right. that. And it feels like those were... I feel so 
even more helpfully, like those came at times when Garth and I were just like a little overwhelmed um, with the world. And, and I was, and I was really impressed by Zach's, Zach's ability to keep doing things, even like in the, <laughs> even when everybody was overwhelmed, you know, um, it was, it was really impressive. Kind of in, in every way, sort of publishing this book, which is, you know, so obviously a team effort. I mean, all books are team efforts I've discovered, but this book, you know, there are more, I, just feeling like one is working more sort of designedly in a team has made everything about publishing a book better. Like um, it's been so collaborative and um, really pretty frictionless and wonderful. Mm, that's nice to hear. Okay. This is sort of more of a question back to sort of the essence of the book or the themes in the book. One of the things that I appreciated as well, again, as I've mentioned, I'm such a prude, but what I liked about some of the kink stuff was that it really sort of lived a little bit in the world of the mundanity of kink and sort of like the regularness of the sex. I think in the earlier stories for me reading it, I was sort of like overwhelmed a little bit because I don't read erotica. I don't read stuff like this. So like it was an adjustment, you know, for me personally, like getting acclimated and Alexander Chi's story is really a wow. And that's the second story. So that was also just like, I was like, Oh, I need to take a break. Um, but wow. In a great way. That is a complimentary. Wow. Um, it's a great but, story. but even his story, I think they all sort of have this sort of like everyday quality to the sex. And I'm, I'm curious if that was intentional or what, what interests you about the sort of everydayness of getting kinky. I mean, I love that you say that. I love that response to the book. I mean, one thing that definitely we did not want to do is sort of treat kink as something exotic or hyperdramatic. You know, I mean, kink is a daily part of lots of people's lives. It's just part of the texture of their lives and sort of, I like the idea that, you know, the kind of overwhelming vibe you got was a sense of kind of normalcy um, of sort of the ways that this is incorporated into normal lives, not, you know, not some sort of high dramatic thing. No, I love that so much. And I think, I, I think, I think there's only, there might be only one book to blame for this, um, but I'm not sure. Maybe it's a larger cultural phenomenon, but um, somebody was saying that the vast majority of um, stories that have to do with SNM that they've encountered all incorporate billionaires. Um, and the, the minute I heard that, I was just like, seriously, like billionaires everywhere. There's a billionaire in every single one of these setups. There aren't that many billionaires, first of all. Second of all, who wants to read about billionaires? <laughs> and, and I feel as though, um, I feel as though there was a really strange leap that, um, that kink took from, and kinky stories took, um, from being like absolutely forbidden and outside the pale of, 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 of possible discussion almost, um, jumping straight from that to, to a joke, I think. Um, and it sort of skipped the part where, or it just like kind of missed out on the part where, where kink is also very human, um, and is neither impossible nor a joke. I mean, I, I definitely have, um, read the billionaire SNM books. Don't mind me over here. My only other foray into this book is different. Let me just put it that way. Uh, very different. If, you, if that's what you're looking for, it's different. You're going to have a different experience for sure. Um, totally. <laughs> so this is definitely a question for this exact moment that we're living through, which is what is it like to work on a book that has so much to do with touch and closeness and physical intimacy in a time where we're not supposed to be touching people and physically intimate with the people outside of our households. Was there any, you know, sort of pandemic response that either of you had in working with this book? I know you said you started sort of the idea back in 2017. So there was a time when this book existed where, you know, you all could get together if you wanted to. And, you know, now with the book coming out, you you can't be near each other. Like you can't be near the other contributors. So I'm just, I'm just curious how that has played into your understanding of the book. It has definitely shifted the way that I read the book. Um, and, you know, I don't quite know how to talk about it, but 
it is true that the fact that, um, you know, we're not having sex in the same way that we were a year ago or yeah, a year ago, um, that, you know, many people are kind of locked away from the kinds of erotic experiences that, um, usually make up a big part of our lives. And many of us, someone like me, I mean, a lot of my erotic life depends on the free circulation of bodies, which is shut down. Um, and there's that has definitely intensified the book for me. I mean, it has just sort of like made, you know, sometimes it feels like a kind of electric shock to read something that is so intimate, so invested in touch in a time when we're mostly cut off from touch. Something I um, I noticed right when the pandemic started, when I could barely, barely, barely work, um, I could barely write, I could barely read, which I know, I know almost everybody was there. Um, but in that sort of desert, I, I quickly found that one of the only things I could bring myself to write um, in terms of fiction at the time was was like party scenes, you know, like like crowded bars. Mm. Like I, I didn't I was I, I didn't even have the energy for solo meditative scenes which generally I love you know solo meditative scenes are like my bread and butter but um but no I wanted party scenes I wanted sex scenes like I wanted I wanted to have that congress of bodies um in the in in what I was dreaming if I did even if I couldn't have it um in my in my actual life and I feel as though rereading some of the stories um in kink almost a full year into the pandemic um in, in those ways, um, the, the ways in which like bodies are engaging with one another, the the sen- how sensorially rich um, the prose is, I feel as though that that's even more delightful to me in some ways than it might have been um, a year ago. Yeah, I just as I was reading it, I was thinking about about touch and obviously you know intimacy and sex, and also just how so many of these stories couldn't exist right now or I mean maybe they could but it, that would be a whole other layer of like we're doing something that's against the rules you know in addition to something that is seen as taboo maybe you know like there's like this an extra layer of forbiddenness I, I felt like if these stories were you know right this instant um that that I, said one one interjection I might make is that um I feel as though kinky people and kinky communities um have always been more alive to the ways in which um, sex can also be and is also in one's mind. Um, And that's, and that kind of sexual engagement um, can be more available virtually. (laughs) I think you both sort of answered this question, but I'm going to just phrase it. If you feel like you've already answered it fully, then we'll just skip it. So don't worry. But is can either of you speak to why you feel that this book needed to exist in the world? Well, I'll say I like to talk a lot about why I think literature has an important role to to play in the way that our culture thinks about sex. And the way that, you know, even though our culture is inundated with images of sex and images of sexual bodies, like to an, to an extent, to a degree that is entirely unprecedented in human history, um, there's a real dearth of what I think of as embodiedness, which is the sense of bodies with consciousness that, you know, very often those sexualized representations of bodies, those images of bodies, like it feels like personhood has been expunged from them. And literature is the best technology we have for the communication of consciousness. And so, you know, that's a real intervention literature can play. And then to kind of, you know, reference something that R.O. said a little while ago, the idea that like kink is a, a human activity and therefore a morally and ethically engaged activity, that kink is a tool we can use to think about our lives um, kink is a way that we build community. Um, I don't know that I've really seen certainly an anthology like this um, that takes that premise seriously, that sort of looks at this as a fully human, humane, embodied set of social practices. And that seemed um, useful. You know, it's a book that I wish I could have read, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah, I love that. I feel as though when 
And I know, I know, I know, Tracy and Garth, I know you've both thought a lot about this too. Um, so when I think about a book like this existing, um, and the joy of having it exist when it, when this particular book hasn't existed before, um, I have to think about how we're, we're talking about a representation of something that quite literally, um, in some ways or in, or in, or in very broad ways might not exist at all. Um, and I wonder what it does to people when, um, if, if most of the, if most of the depictions in, in literature, um, and in film and in TV right now of kinky people are that they are either billionaires or want to be with billionaires and or serial killers. That's a really big one. Um, often a serial killer is, all, is also kinky. It's like the two go hand in hand. You kill, you kill people and you like kink, um, I guess. And so, but like, what does it do to people when, when that's all you see? And often if you've had those desires for a long time and all you see around you um, is signaling that says that you're wrong um, and or that you that you don't exist, um, that it's, it's such a terrible loneliness. And I feel as though one of the tremendous things that literature can do is to help alleviate that loneliness. Yeah, Ugh, I love that. OK, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank member FDIC. I always like to ask this. Was there a different title or a working title for the book that is different than Kink? Or did you all already always know that Kink was the name? I, I, I think I remember that the Garth wasn't the first title Deviance. And then didn't we decide that we didn't that we weren't sure that we loved the way the word deviant implies that there's a norm. Do we have that conversation? Did I make this up? <laughs> no, that sounds that sounds very plausible. Maybe I blacked it out because I do. I hate the implications of deviance. But yeah, it, yeah, that's it. I totally don't remember the process of coming to the title. Okay, that's okay yeah. too. I know it was probably a while so, ago. Yeah, that's no, funny. that's fine. I, some people always know. Some people, you know, I've had some authors who are like, I don't even like the title, honestly. Like. 
my marketing team said it was good and I couldn't come up with something better. So there's always such a broad spectrum, which is why I usually like to ask about it. Um, and then I like to ask people who edit collections or anthologies this and you can plead the fifth or you can just be honest with the audience. Do either of you have a favorite story or a story that you like most? Not necessarily the best story, but just one that speaks to you the most. I love them all equally. Okay, you can try that Exactly the same amount. You can play that game, Garth. I'm going to slide into your DMs later. (laughs) (laughs) Reese, are you pleading the fifth also? Well, I I also feel as though, like, we didn't, we, you know, we we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have made a book um, except with stories that we really loved, you know? So, so it just feels like Well, I know that you love them all. Yeah. I meant more like, you know, sometimes there's things that just speak to you, you know, like there's like this story just really sure. like resonated with me or this one didn't. So maybe favorite's not the right word, but is there maybe a story that you feel like like pops out to you when you think about this collection that you feel like, you know, you're, you appreciate it because it embodies a lot of the things that you maybe thought you wanted to have happen with this when you set out to make this happen or anything or not. I can also get off this question immediately. <laughs> Well, maybe I'll answer this more narrowly. And I'll say that like, just just like speaking as like a Korean American woman. um, I don't know that I even came across depictions of Asian Americans experiencing desire. Mm. (laughs) Until Lord knows, like maybe sometime after grad school, I I want to say like maybe Alex Chi's first novel, the, the Tremendous Edinburgh, might have been the first place where I found it. Like that's that's how that's how late it was. <laughs> and so for there to be like multiple Asian writers in this book, um, and had to have these multiple stories centered on desire and 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 the body is just like fucking incredible to me. And if I had encountered this when I was eleven, my mind would have been absolutely blown. <laughs> that's a great answer, um, Garth. Did you want to add anything? For you, I I love them each okay. equally. Okay. They're all my favorite. Everyone. <laughs> all right, Garth, I've had enough of you. I'm gonna mute you. <laughs> just kidding. Um, okay, I sort of want to talk about the process more specifically for for each of you because, as I mentioned before, you're both um, also. I guess solo soloists. I don't know what you would call them. solo novelists, solo writers. I don't know that there's a word for this, um, but. I like soloists. It sounds like you're in a band or something or a choir. But anyways, what was the process like for you to balance um, sort of your responsibilities as an editor to other people and their writing versus, I guess, if you're writing your own forthcoming books or things that are separate from your joint collaboration? How did you sort of balance that? What is that process like? What happens to your writing while you're working on other people's writings? Well, um, I know for me that, I know this isn't true for everybody at all, um, but I know that for me, I am I am in the best place I can be um, if I'm writing fiction every day. And if I'm writing, like, if I'm meaningfully spending time on fiction, you know, um, in, in really, really difficult times, like, so, so for, like, the first two months of the pandemic, all I could write was one sentence a day of fiction. Um, and that felt like this, like, incredibly thin lifeline that was um that was sort of keeping me tethered to my novel so all of that is in a way of saying that like that will always in some ways be my first priority um that said I found that working on these stories um and thinking about them and and editing them with with Garth and with Zach and with the writers um it just felt like a completely complimentary I was I was really surprised by the ways in which like neither activity was taking energy or space um, that the other wanted. Yeah, I mean, I think Aro and I are both writers who are always doing multiple things, you know, teaching or editing or, you know, whatever. And so, um, yeah, I, I also, I didn't feel any sort of conflict or competition. It was really a joy to sort of turn from the loneliness of writing my own work to kind of the community of working with other people. Mm. What sort of stuff were you both reading, watching, listening to as you were either writing your own stories or um, working on this book? Maybe I'll answer it this way. Um, At least at the start of the pandemic, when we were, um, when Garth and I were working on some of the stories and some stories were coming in. So like the the editing was was happening during that time. Um, I know I was really drawn in terms of the reading that I could do, and again, like my ability was like 
remarkably limited like I could read so little but um I was mostly drawn to reading poetry I could barely read fiction for the first time in my life um and I was especially drawn I found to reading poetry that was um that was like exquisitely embodied um that was like alive to um to bodies in to, to bodies on the page um and a couple that really that really meant a lot to me um and still mean a lot to me that I'm like rereading every other day um are Natalie Diaz's postcolonial love poem um which yeah her the, her, the, her attention to the body to her attention to desire um is is I think almost unparalleled if not just straight up unparalleled um and another one that I was rereading a lot was Nicole Seeley's um object lessons great and then this is sort of more broad general um and I guess you could take it as an as your editor self or your soloist self but how or maybe there's a difference in how this happened for you but what was your writing editing setup like how often were you doing it where do you listen to music are you at home are you out in the world if there's no pandemic are there beverages are there snacks like are there candles that you light like what is the vibe that you work in you know for me i i do i am actually weirdly um ritualistic about writing like i um, I like to have a schedule. I like to be in my office. I like to, um, you know, have a certain notebook and a certain pen. So all of those things are true for me. Editing the book felt much more flexible. Like I could go to a cafe and sit down and and work on these stories. But when I'm sort of composing, especially composing a first draft, um, I really, I like to sort of be in a very controlled environment. And as Aro said, it's really important for my drafting to to be able to work on it every day. And I tend to be really monastic about how I work. Um, and it's, and it's always the same, you know, I just work on my desk. I can't, I'm, I get so distracted by, um, by stimuli that I can't have, I can't even have like paintings or photos, um, up on my walls, even though I would love to, because they just, they take too much, they, they draw the eye too much. Um, but so, yeah, I, I, I just like stare at it. I have to have like a blank wall in front of me. Like it can't be a window. Um, and I have to have like almost nothing around me. And it has to be and the room has to be close to monochrome or like, you know, like black and white. <laughs> a little <laughs> bit of gray is bearable, but that's about it. Uh, <laughs> so um, so in, but, but inside of that context, um, I do. There is one big difference when I'm working on my on my own fiction versus when I'm editing, which is that I'll change the music. Um, and so when I'm writing when I'm writing fiction, I'm usually looping one or two songs the whole time. Um, and then when I'm editing, I'm probably probably doing the same. Although it can be looser, I could go to like one to four songs. <laughs> but there, it's like a, an entirely different array of songs that and like the two cannot cross. Yeah. And are the songs <laughs> connected to what you're working on, or are the songs like sort of just? songs that you are liking in the moment or or just songs that you know every word to or every movement to or how do how do you even pick what songs are in your very short playlist um well it depends on, on it depends on how well they're working in the moment so it can always change however um i've realized over time that the songs i want to work with when i'm writing fiction are minor key songs um with few to at most three voices, um, quartets, you know, not symphonies. And it has to be, <laughs> the music can't skip too far outside of one octave. Like it kind of needs to be like a steady state situation. <laughs> oh God, I so love that's, this. that's about all. So yeah, I'm always, I'm always hitting up my friends who, um, who just know a lot more about music than I do. I'm like, listen, do you have any, like, I, like, I, like, I'm like, I'm, I'm low on supply. <laughs> <laughs> can you give me recommendations for songs that hit exactly this and yeah oh my gosh that is yeah. so funny and both of you did not answer the part of the question that I am the most obsessed with which is snacks and beverages can you have anything around you that you consume while you write coffee coffee definitely I don't eat but I drink <laughs> a lot of coffee when I write okay non-stop coffee and water um I ever since I've read, I feel as though I've, I don't know how scientifically sound they are, but I feel as though I've come across a couple of studies that say like the more coffee you drink, the better, and you'll like prevent diabetes. And I'm just like, great, so I can have all the coffee I want. This sounds <laughs> <Thank> real. You, <laughs> 
<laughs> this definitely sounds like real science that you should definitely like take to I don't know the Smithsonian. It feels very I think real so. to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is all. Yeah, yeah. This is um. It's a, it's it's certainly a time uh, for for sound science. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love that so much. Okay, so for folks who love kink who read it and they just eat it up and they think it's amazing, which it is. What would you recommend to them? What other things, maybe not necessarily, you know, other anthologies, but just things that are maybe in conversation with the work that is in the book? That's such a great question. I can't believe we don't have an answer ready for this. (laughs) A couple of things. Um, One is the poetry of Carl Phillips, which if our anthology involved Mm -hmm. poetry, um, I would have really loved to include. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Mm -hmm. the work of Kathy Acker, maybe especially Blood and Guts Um, in high school would be my Part of the problem right now is my head is bouncing too. And and my head is like, well, you know, they should definitely check out um, Alex. She is like, oh, right, right, right. right. No, no, no. He's he's in the anthology. (laughs) Right. But Um, so a lot of the people who are in the anthology have their own soloist books as well and their own work that folks can of course check out and they should. Um, And I think they'll want to, you know, like you read the story and you're like, I need, I need more. So I think some of the folks have books and then other folks have books that are coming out soon. So obviously, you know, I'm sort of striking those people from the record, but if you can't think of other things, that's fine too. Like, you know what? A couple just occurred to me. Um, writers who we'd hoped um, to 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 have in the anthology, um, and then things and then it, things ended up not working out for a variety of reasons. Um, but Meredith Talisan um, has a book that came out last year, Fairest. Um, I love their work very much. Um, there's also oh, Renda Jar has a book coming out this year um, that I'm really excited about, um, and it's centered on joy which i find to be really exciting especially now especially this year um those are a couple that come to mind and also i should just pull oh go ahead one more to that list lydia yuknovich um who is i think one of our great 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 writers of sex right now okay great um one of the things i think that i should plug is ro you put together a list every year of um fiction or sorry, not fiction, just books in general by women of color that are coming out. And I I know that's one of my favorite resources. And I've discovered um, some great women authors um, that I didn't know about or books that I weren't on my radar. So I will link to that, of course, in the show notes too, because you have pretty much impeccable taste when it comes to reading and editing, I guess, too. Now we, we know this about you and writing. We, we just are learning new things about you every day. Wait, but that's such a compliment from you because I'm obsessed with your taste and I'll always read something that you're that you're excited about. Well, we have to talk about the things that I've already picked up from your list that I'm obsessed with. So we'll do this offline. But um, I guess, and this is a, a no pressure question. Again, you can tell me to leave you alone. Okay. I appreciate this, but I'm just being nosy, which is, do you all know what comes next for each of you or do you have any plans to collaborate again or is there a kink volume two that you're hoping like any sort of future plans and again tell me to leave you alone and I'm being nosy and rude and your book is just coming out into the world and we're already stressed like please feel free I mean I know I would always um I feel as though this will be true for my lifetime I'll always be excited to work on something with Garth um we don't have anything we won't have any sequels in the in the plans right now but you know who knows um and uh, as for what I'm focusing on, um, I, I don't, I've already crossed the five-year mark, man. I'm like, how does this even happen? I've been working on my second novel for five years already. Um, <laughs> I really wanted this to be like a short novel. And it's not, we're already out of there. Like, there's no way it's a short novel anymore. Or it's not, a, it's not like a quick novel. Um, I've worked on it for five years. And it's about two women. There is a um, photographer who becomes obsessed with a ballerina. Um, and they're both women. And in the book... I'm interested in what happens when two women artists who want a great deal um, are allowed space to play and to chase those desires. Ready right now. Pre-order click. Like I want it. Yeah, I'm ready to go. Not to rush you, but I'm available for purchase whenever needed. Take all the time, but I'm ready. Uh, what about you guys? I too will always leap at the chance to work with Aro again, and I hope that that will happen. Um, I think, uh, well, something that I'm working on is um, a book actually about uh, sex and literature and writing sex. So a nonfiction kind of crafty book. Yeah. 
Ooh, okay. I'm also a team pre-order for this as well. I'm very excited because now that I've read two books about sex, one being y'all's book and well, I guess four, three being the other book we talked about earlier, um, books. I did read all three on vacation. Nope, don't mind me. Um, <laughs> I now will read more about sex. And this is sort of the last question. You can each have your own separate answers for this. But if you could have one person, dead or alive, read Kink, who would you want it to be? How do we not? These are like such good questions that like we should have answers we can leave to. <laughs> I will say there is a French writer who I think is just an absolutely brilliant writer of bodies and of sex. Um, and her name is Violette Le Duc. And she has a book called Thérèse et, et Isabelle, Therese and Isabelle, which is mind-blowingly amazing. And if I could put our book into one person's hands, it would be hers. You know what? Maybe I'll say, I'll give a shout out to um, somebody I'm joyfully reading right now. Um, she's dead, but however, um, I, I've been really excited while reading June Jordan's poetry by her attention to the body and by her, um, by the way she centers joy. And I feel as though if she were alive and we could show her the book, um, it would it would feel like such a tremendous honor just to, well, I mean, it'd be a, tre a tremendous honor to be near her, obviously, but it'd be such a tremendous honor to like even have her like touch the book. Yeah, that's so good. Those are such good, interesting answers. I love that. For everyone at home, the book is kink. It is a story anthology. It is edited by Aro Kwan and Garth Greenwell. You can get it now. It is out in the world. And again, I will just say this. I was nervous. I was a little intimidated and it was totally accessible and enjoyable and different than what I thought and just like really exciting and and again different like in a good way you know you go in with these preconceived notions of like this is going to be like people with leather and like yeah there might be like some leather or whatever but like it's so rich and there's so much interior and it's just they're I mean they're great stories that have to do with kink they're not they're not just stories about you know intercourse um and so if you're nervous about the book, I empathize with you. And also, I think you should get out of your comfort zone and try something a little different. I just I, I can't speak highly enough, not just about the book, but also just about how I felt reading it and how I was challenged and excited by it. So thank you both so much for putting the work into this collection and for being here today. Well, thank you so much. It's been a joy. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been this has been such a joy, Tracy. We love you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I'm so happy to have you all and everyone else. We will see you in the stacks. Thank you to both Garth Greenwell and Aro Kwan for being my guests today. Remember, the Stacks Book Club pick for March is Everybody Looking by Candace Elo, and we will be joined by Nick Stone for that discussion on Wednesday, March 31st. Please make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Sebastian Alcala is our sound editor and producer. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 